St. Paul says to Timothy, bear your share of hardship for the gospel with the strength that comes from God. Bear your share of hardship for the gospel. Remember when I was in college, I went to a focus conference out in Denver, and it was the year that the Passion of the Christ came out. Um, And they got a a deal to do an early screening for this conference of like two or 3,000 college students uh, in March. Or it it came out in March, and it was the conference was in January. So we got the first screening um, of the movie. And I remember it was a very unique place to see that movie. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, it's intensely realistic. Um, some people like it, some people don't. It was a, a very controversial movie at the time, but uh, gives you a real sense of what Jesus actually suffered uh, in his passion from the time of the agony all the way to his last breath. And as we were all in this, packed in this like hotel ballroom, 3,000 of us watching this movie, the movie ended and no one said a word. It was just utter silence. The only sound you heard was sniffling from people crying. And then all of us filed out of the ballroom, up onto the escalators, into our elevators, or taking the stairs up to our hotel rooms. And I remember myself, we feel like totally alone in this crowd of people. Like you're, you're just lost in your thought of what you just witnessed, what you just saw. And I was laying on the floor of the hotel room because we were jammed four, four guys in one room and uh, looking up at the, at the ceiling. And I just had this feeling like, I have to do something. <laughs> I can't just know this, that, that Jesus, the Son of God, who I believe is God, came and did this for me, that I can't not do anything about that. And I flash back to a moment when I was in high school, uh, beginning to kind of awaken to the truth of the faith, and it was a Good Friday service, the, what's called the Veneration of the Cross, that one day of the year that the church doesn't celebrate the Mass because her bridegroom is dead. We do communion in the midst of a veneration of the cross service. So if you've ever been to it, it's like Palm Sunday. You read the Passion narrative and uh, do a long list of solemn intercessions that once a year the, the church prays for the church and the entire world that she would accept her Savior. And then you come up and, and everyone kisses the wood of the cross on which hung the salvation of the world. And somewhere in that service, I was 15 or 16 years old, it sank in that same feeling of like, Lord, you did this for me. Uh, first of all, I'm not worthy. Why would you love me that much? And then what am I supposed to do about that? One last memory. I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, uh, and I was watching some TV show, maybe a Dateline or some, one of these kind of human interest journalism shows, and it was about near-death experiences. And I was fascinated with it. And one of the stories that really stuck with me was of a, uh, a woman who had, gone, who had died on a hospital bed and then come back to life miraculously. But she had gone up to heaven and met people there, like people that she knew on this earth and that had died, and she saw them again. But there was one person there that she didn't recognize that came to greet her, and it was a person that said she was her sister. And she said, I don't have a sister. She was the exact same age, looked like her. Well, she woke up and told her mom about this experience. And her mom said, actually, you were a twin, but I miscarried one. And she'd never told her that before. And something about that story where where it's like, how do you explain something like that? It just like bowled me over as a kid. And I thought, whoa, heaven is real. It's not just like a thing you say that, oh, dead people go to heaven. 
what if it's really real? And I remember that night, I, for the first time that I ever remember doing this, I knelt down uh, next to my bed and actually prayed. I had no idea how to pray. I mean, I knew the Hail Mary and Our Father and stuff, but this was more like, oh, you know, just that groaning of like, what is this about? There's something really significant to my life. There's something even beyond this life. And humorously enough, for like two or three days, I did the dishes without being asked. I took out the garbage. Like I was helpful around the house. I tried to be a better person because heaven was real. And that in my 11 or 12 year old mind, that's, that's what you do about that. You bear your share of hardship for the gospel. I think we all feel this, that if the gospel is really true, that this is the, the extent of God's love for us and our need for him, then the good news, Jesus' death, resurrection, his ascension into heaven, the fact that he's here among us through the gift of the Holy Spirit in the church, and most especially in the sacraments, and we have access to that life because of his sacrifice, we have to change. There's something in us that has to change. And that's what Lent are reminded of every single year, that there's some part of me that hasn't given myself over, that's choosing comfort instead of hardship, because I don't get that heaven is real. I'm living as if this is the only thing that's real, this world. The gospel today of the transfiguration is this great story. It's recounted in all the synoptic gospels of Peter, James, and John going up that mountain just before Jesus goes down to Jerusalem finally for his uh, passion and death. This is one last intimate moment of friendship, this great revelation. He takes his closest three apostles, Peter, James, and John, up onto Mount Tabor, and he's transfigured before them, the same person they've been around for three years that called them from the shore of the Sea of Galilee as fishermen. And something in their gut was like, yeah, I think I'll leave my job and follow this guy. Something had drawn them to take on a new life because of Jesus. But they didn't realize who really was that was in front of him until this moment. His face shone like the sun and his clothes were radiant and white. They They saw Moses and Elijah, these Old Testament prophets that represented the law and the prophets, the Torah, came miraculously. They're standing there next to Jesus talking about stuff. And then this voice from heaven, this cloud that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They see who this is that they've been with this whole time. I feel like that's what had happened to me in those moments as a kid. And then later on in high school and college was like, I had a sense that Jesus was there all the time. I was learning the faith. I was being taught the faith. I was going to mass with my family. But there are these moments in life, and I hope you've had, and I hope you will have, where you really see him for who he really is. And of course, they had to come down that mountain of the transfiguration, and Jesus predicts his passion right then. After they see who he is and how powerful he is, the presence of God among them, then he reminds them, the Son of Man must suffer, be handed over to sinners, and die. But can you imagine what bond there was between Peter, James, and John after that? It was like many of my friends in college that I grew really close to God with, that we were kind of mutually encouraging to, to go deep in our, deeper in our faith. You have a certain bond with people that aren't just like people you hang out with because you enjoy them or people that you have a common interest with. People who are striving for holiness together and witness the work of God among them are forged with a bond that is not easily undone. Peter, James, and John were with Jesus all that time and all those miracles with the transfiguration, the resurrection, how they must have been bound together. But you fast forward a few years and what happens? 
James is the first apostle that's martyred. He's the first one to give his life, to shed his blood because of his faith in Christ. It's in Jerusalem that he dies. It's recounted in the Acts of the Apostles. St. Peter goes on his missionary journeys, ends up in Rome, and is crucified upside down for his love of Jesus. What about John, the last one mentioned, James' brother? He grows, he's the only apostle that's not martyred. He grows well into old age. And at the end uh, of his life, he's exiled to the island of Patmos in Greece, where he writes uh, the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, this letter that, to the seven churches describing the new heavens and the new earth. I can only imagine what's going on in John's heart. Uh, as he's growing old, he's the last living apostle. He was the last one to really know Jesus in his earthly life, to witness the resurrection. He's taught the faith. He's handed it down to the next generation. But all of his friends are gone. They've all gone to the other side. But John knows this, that that fire, that light that was in Jesus, that he saw in the transfiguration, this mystical experience he'd had in the community of his friends, was not outside him anymore. After Pentecost, it's totally different. Our relationship to Jesus is not like my relationship to you, where I can see you, you're outside of me, we have a dialogue. The relationship with Jesus we have after Pentecost, after he's flooded the church with his spirit, is interior. That fire, that light is in you, in us, both individually and as a body. When we come to celebrate the Eucharist, for instance, we become the body of Christ. We're related to each other like like a hand is related to a foot. We're organically linked as a mystical body. So that light, that intimacy, that friendship with Jesus is still there. And yet he longs for something more. I think we all feel that in us, that, yeah, I know God is here, but I want... I want my friends here, too. I want to see God face to face. I want to, I want to be at that transfiguration forever. But John on that island, think of that. That's us during Lent. John, it's like, it's like all of us are going to this, on this great vacation to this promised land. We're all leaving someday. And, and some of us have already left. And they've gotten to the other side. They've gotten to the other ocean. They've taken their ship. They've taken all their stuff with them. They're not here anymore. And we've sent along all of our cargo, all of our foot lockers with all of our stuff in it. And we're just left in our house waiting for our ship to come in to take us to this promised land. That's the other side. That's heaven. And John is just waiting. He's like, I miss my friends. I miss my stuff. But this, this isn't where I belong. I don't want them all to come back and live here. I want to go to where they are. My friends, Christianity makes no sense. Lent makes no sense if heaven is not real. If Lent is another spiritual program or physical program or Catholic Weight Watchers or something with, with like some kind of practical imminent end and not something that draws us on to let go of comfort, bear hardship for the gospel so that we can invest in a life that never ends, a relationship that will carry us on into eternity and provide for every single desire of our hearts, Christianity makes no sense. But Jesus is real. He is really the Son of God. He really died on the cross for you and rose again to new life so that you could have the fullness of life.